Good morning, Christ Covenant. If you can, we're going to be looking at two texts this morning. We're going to start in Matthew 6, 9, kind of as our launch point, but the main meat is going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. So while you're finding those two passages, let me first of all say my name is John Goforth. I am the youth director here at Christ Covenant. I've been here roughly about, I guess, five months now, and I am beyond honored to have you guys as my fellow congregation and those that I get to share life with. My wife and I have been so blessed to get to know each and every one of you. You guys from the very get-go when we first came in the building and were the deer in the headlights trying to figure out where we were and what we were doing, even of a church of this size, people recognized us, came up and introduced themselves, and not only gave us just uh, conversations without meaning, but really just wanted to get to know us right off the bat and start to share the gospel in our lives. And so as a church family, we love you. My wife and I, I'm so excited to raise our son here, and we can't be any more happy and thankful for having you guys as a church family. So on my family's behalf, I say thank you. And then also, I'd like to say thank you already to Tom and the staff and the elders and what they've already done for me, and Tom meeting weekly with me and pouring into me. He's already been such a great mentor and friend, and our hearts are overjoyed with what we have here at this church. Now, we're starting a mini-series. Uh, apparently, Tom thought he would be too busy sending his last kid off, getting married, going to Annapolis or something. So we're doing a mini-series here, and Nick covered last week. And this week, uh, Nick covered, we're doing a vision of the church. And so our church vision is to love God's glory, love God's people, and serve God's world. Now, Nick, last week, beautifully covered serve God's world. And this week, I got love God's glory. And not only love God's glory, because it's kind of an abstract thing. How do we love God's glory? What are ways we love God's glory? And the specific thing I'm going to talk about today is we love God's glory through prayer. Now, as soon as we say prayer, it's kind of one of those things that everyone quenches a little bit. Or I mean, when you start to think about discussing prayer, what the myriads of things we could discuss, right? We could talk about how should you pray? Even in Matthew 6, 9, we have a model presented by Christ. We could follow the acronym of ACTS. You do prayer through adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We could talk about uh, how frequent you should pray. Should it be in the mornings and the evenings? Should it be both times? We could talk about when you pray. Should you pray before a meal or after a meal? For some people's cooking, both. But we should always... There's a multitude of things we can talk about when it comes to prayer, Right? Then there's this other aspect of prayer. This part that kind of makes us feel a little guilty when we think about our prayer life just this week, right? How many times did we actually seek God? How many times did we actually try to commune with God? Do we have a set time during the day where we commune with God? Where we try to enter into His presence? There's a multitude of things we could talk about, and many of them would be healthy. But today, my goal is to spur us on by way of reminder of the privilege we have as believers in the act of prayer. It is a privilege. And so pray with me as we get started this morning. Lord, I thank you that you hear us. Lord, I pray that your word will land on good soil. Father, as I preach this morning... I know that these words are true and that these words are convicting for me in my life and my prayer life. Lord, I pray 
that at the end of this day, may we all leave rejoicing in what we have in Christ and the gift of prayer. And it's by his name we pray. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse 7 for context. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, at the base form of what is prayer, it's pretty straightforward, even through looking at all of Scripture, that prayer is conversation with God, right? It's communion with God. It's fellowship with God. It's us interacting with God. God has spoken to us through His Spirit-inspired Word. He's spoken to us through His acts in history. So He has spoken to us, and then we speak back to Him. Prayer is a dialogue. It is communion. It is fellowship with God. It is being able to have communication with Him. And we see right off the bat when Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles who use many words to try to gain God's attention. You enter in by saying, our Father. It's a personal time. It's a personal thing where you get to know Him. You get to have relationship, not with an impersonal deity who's deaf and dumb and cannot hear, but with the one true living God. Prayer is a conversation with Him. Now, one of the things we have to do, though, when we read this passage is I think very quickly we often read it with an assumption, don't we? We automatically hop right into the Our Father and we get excited about how Jesus teaches us to pray, but we forget one very important question when it comes to the idea of prayer. And that question is, how can a holy God allow sinful people to enter into His presence? How can a holy God, who's righteous in all of His ways, perfect in all of His attributes, allow sinful creatures to enter into His presence and to entreat His ear, to have Him hear our cries, to have Him know us? How can that be? Because see, when we approach prayer, often we have so many misconceptions. I mean, I wish I had time to talk about all the misconceptions we have, such as manipulating God or the genie in the bottle God. And if we know that one was true, then NC State football would be better. UNC basketball would be able to compete with Duke. And so we know some of those misconceptions are way off. But one of the misconceptions we have when it comes to prayer is that our prayer life and our attitude we take for granted. We don't see prayer as a gift, but we see it more as an obligation. We don't see prayer as a means of grace, but we see it as a religious duty and a chore. And so we come in with that attitude, and then we also come in with the attitude that I think sometimes even as Americans, that we have the privilege and we have the right to be heard by God, regardless of how we decide to enter into His presence. We think that my life is going crazy, things are going bad, God should definitely hear me because I'm John Goforth. Look, I help little ladies cross the street. I brush my teeth twice a day. God should certainly hear me. We think we have that privilege and that right. And we hop into Matthew chapter 6 and we see Jesus saying, pray then our Father who is in heaven. And we forget all the things that are required for us to even be able to say our Father. 
for we are sinful and he is holy. But this shouldn't surprise us because ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've had a problem with our communion and our fellowship with God. See, before Genesis chapter 3, we had Adam and Eve in the garden with God in perfect fellowship. Immediate access to the Creator of all things. Immediate ability to be able to talk to Him, to have conversation with Him. He knows them fully. That's why they can be naked and unashamed and they know Him. And it's a perfect relationship of joy and fellowship. And yet immediately we see in Genesis chapter 3, that Eve disobeyed the words of God and listened to the voice of Satan and she ate of the fruit. And Adam followed suit and he disobeyed the words of God. He transgressed God's law, God's words, God's goodness. And he listened to the voice of his wife and he himself ate of the fruit. And from that moment on, Adam and Eve are kicked out of God's presence. And it's symbolic with the flaming sword and the cherubim that protect it. They no longer have immediate access to God. They no longer have direct communion, direct fellowship with God. It has been broken. Now, yes, when we think about prayer, I think we forget about that, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He hears all things. He knows all things. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But when it comes to actually hearing the cries of sinful people that try to approach him on their own works, he turns a deaf ear. And you say, well, give me examples. Well, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain, right after he's murdered Abel, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He says, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And then this is the part. And from your face, I shall be hidden. My punishment is greater than I can bear because from your face, I shall be hidden. No longer do I have access to you. Cain is crying out. Jeremiah 11, God's speaking to his people. He doesn't hear their cries because of their iniquities and because they try to do things on their own self-righteousness. This is what God tells Jeremiah. He says, therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? Or Jeremiah 14.11 says, The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. For see, they were a sinful people who tried to enter into God's presence and have his ear by their own ways, through their burnt offerings, through their fasting, and they tried to do it on their own. And God says the same thing in Isaiah, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. They were a people who came to God, who honored them with their lips. They followed his rules, but they didn't follow it with their heart. And so therefore, their access to God was not allowed because they were a sinful people trying to enter into a holy God's presence to have communion and fellowship with him. There's other examples too, isn't there, where we see of God's holiness and our separation from him. A clear example would be what? In Exodus 20 with Mount Horeb, 
where God's very presence comes upon this mountain and his, the very presence of him is there and he marks off the mountain and he says, if anyone crosses this line, they must be stoned to death. If it's an animal, if it's a person, it doesn't matter. They cannot cross this line for they will be stoned to death because I am holy. And we see that only one person, Moses, is allowed to go up the mountain and to have fellowship with God and to receive the law, right? Or we see in Leviticus chapter 10 with uh, Nadab and Abihu who try to enter into God's presence, but they try to do it on their own. They offer strange fire. And God immediately evaporates them, right? Because they tried to enter into God's presence by their own means, and they tried to have God's ear by their own way. And they did not enter in his presence rightly. Now, we could go through all of these verses, but there's one picture that paints it best of the limited access we now have to God because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That picture is the tabernacle, right? The Old Testament system of the sacrificial system, right? The picture of the tabernacle where it's layered with its outer court, with the inner court, and then with the holy place where the table of the presence was, where the menorah would shine then on the holy of holies, which was hidden by a thick veil with cherubim carved into it. And then inside that holy of holies would be the Ark of the Covenant with cherubim protecting it, symbolizing the very footstool of where God is. We have this imagery of the tabernacle, but it has layers, doesn't it? It causes, requires sacrifices to get to one layer to the next layer. And not only does it have layers, but to enter into the very holy of holies, to the very place where God Almighty dwells, the creator of heaven and earth, you can only do it one day a year. And can everyone do it? Do we just have a line with a fast track? No. Leviticus 16 teaches us that only one person, the high priest, can enter in to God's very presence. And he does it with throwing incense and the smoke fills up the room. He can't even see. He offers up the prayers quickly on his behalf and then on the people's behalf. Limited access to God. Only one priest, only one day a year, while the rest of the people wait outside the camp. They have God's presence near, but they can't enter into his throne room. And then they have a priest who enters in who's sinful, and they have sacrifices that don't rightly atone. And then the worst part about it all, or the difficult part about it all, so to speak, is that even in this very place where the high priest will enter into the very holy of holies, that Moses is told that this tabernacle is a pattern. It's a type. It's not even the real throne room of God. So it's limited and it's a type. It's made after a pattern. So these people, imagine yourself as an Old Testament Israelite. You know God. He's given you your word yet you don't have immediate access to Him. There are rules, there are sacrifices that have to be made. One cannot just simply enter into God's presence. He's obligated by His justice. It's kind of depleting, isn't it? Only one day a year, only one high priest can enter into His very presence. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And as you're turning to the book of Hebrews, 
Let's set the context of what Hebrews is. Hebrews is a book that's all about Christ is better. Christ is superior. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the priests. Christ is better than the sacrificial animals. Christ is better than the tabernacle. Christ is better. Christ is superior. And so when we have this tension of how do sinful people get into the presence of God? How can we call Him our Father? How can we know Him? How can we know that He hears our cries? We look at Hebrews chapter 10. And we start in verse 19. And he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. What is this holy place? Look in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says this, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, which is contrasting with the tabernacle, right? A mere copy of the true one. But Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For see, the whole Old Testament system was a type and a shadow. The very tabernacle, the very place where they could even have communion with God, fellowship with God, enter into His presence, was a type. Yet, it says that Christ entered in once and for all, not into the type, but into the very throne room of God. And so He says, have confidence to enter this throne room. Remember who we are. Remember, we are sinful people who from birth always choose evil. You never have to teach a little kid how to steal a cookie. He learns pretty quickly, right? We are evil from birth. Our heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. And yet it says that Christ entered into the very holy place. And because of that, we can enter in with confidence. Not just to a tabernacle, but to where God dwells, where thunder and lightning rain all the time, where angels cry out to the top of their lungs, holy, holy, holy is He. Where He reigns on a sea of glass, where the nations are like a drop in a bucket in His hand, where He's the writer of history as Adam prayed, where He numbers the days of all mankind. He knows us before we sit down. He knows us before we rise, before we speak a word. He knows it. That presence of that God we have access to. And not only do we walk in timidly as the high priest would with fear and trembling. Think of Luke chapter 2 and Zacharias just has the angel Gabriel appear to him in his presence. He's terrified and he's fearful and he steps back. It's just a mere angel. But we get to enter in, not timidly, but with confidence into the very throne room of this God who's the creator of joy itself, who's the sustainer of life. And we enter in confidently. And that begs the question, how? And thankfully, it tells us that we enter into this holy place not by our works, not by our goodness, not by our how often we tithe, how often we do different religious works, but we enter into God's very presence by the blood of Jesus. 
For it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. It was impossible for us to do anything on our own to ever, ever, ever have access to God. Yet by the blood of Jesus, we now can enter in confidently. As we talked in the Advent season, and we were reminded over and over again of His incarnation, reminded again of His taking on flesh and being perfectly righteous on our behalf, without sin, never sinning, never failing, never one wayward thought, never one wayward deed, never misspoke, perfect, decided to become sin for us. Decided to have a crown of thorns to be placed on his head. Decided to have a scarlet robe thrown on him. Decided that he would be blindfolded and punched by the very men he created. He would be mocked. He would be humiliated. He would be spit on. He would have his beard plucked. He would have nails go into his hands. He would have nails go into his ankles. He would have splinters on his back from the cross. He would be lifted up and people would shame him and say, you are not the Son of God. All of it. Struggling for air. All of it. So that we no longer have to enter into a type and so that we no longer have no access to God, but that we can enter into God's very presence. It was by His blood we have confidence to draw near. By His blood. And it's by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil. That is His flesh. And you remember in the Holy of Holies, there's the picture of that thick veil. And this veil isn't just some bland veil, but it has stitched into it the picture of the cherubim, which once again reminds the people of the Garden of Eden that they no longer have access to God. And yet, when Christ says, it is finished upon the cross, what do we know about that veil? That it's torn from top to bottom. And no longer is our cherubim that keep us out. No longer is our sinfulness a problem because it's been paid for by Christ. And we can now enter in to God's presence. And this is a good thing. This is a great thing that we can enter in whenever we desire to His very presence, to the God who knows all things. When family members have cancer, when we're struggling, when we have sinful thoughts, when we need His grace, when we need joy, when we need uh, perfection, when we need all our desires answered, we can find it from the One who sustains all things by entering into His presence by the blood of Christ. It's good news that's the goal of today is that prayer is no longer an obligation it's no longer something that we see as a mere duty that we have to do to maintain righteousness but that prayer is a gift that has been purchased by the blood of christ and when we think about prayer and this gift that we have as a means of grace I think one of the helpful things to do is to contrast it or think back to what we were before Christ. To what it was like before you could not enter into the throne room by the righteousness and by the blood of Christ. What it was like when things went crazy, when jobs didn't line up, when family members lied to you, when Friends cheated on you. When things happened, when people lied and stealed from you, and you had no one to talk to, you had no one to find comfort from, you had no one to bring you peace, you had no one to bring you joy, 
Think back on that. And the desperate feeling of loneliness, knowing that there is a Creator when you see creation, knowing that there is a God, knowing that he, He's somewhere out there, but you can't enter into His presence. You can't access Him. You can't know Him. Think back to that moment. And now think about your coworkers, or your family members, or your friends who are still stuck in that moment. You know, there is a prayer written in the 7th century that is still so applicable to today. It was written in the 7th century by a Persian, and it's called To the Prayer to Every God. Now, this, this guy is praying, and he doesn't have any idea what God is out there. He doesn't know if there's a supreme God or if it's a goddess or if it's just a Lord. And moreover, he doesn't know what sin he's done. He knows he's guilty before this God, but he doesn't know what guilt he, exactly he has done. He doesn't have a clear law. He's hopeless. He's lonely. And so he's crying out in this prayer. And remember, this is in the 7th century, but it still rings true for our culture today, right? He says, May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and the unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. He then says, The sin which I have committed, I know not. The misdeed which I have committed, I know not. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The offense which I have committed, I know not. The transgression I have done, I know not. But the Lord in the anger of his heart hath looked upon me. But if he's not a Lord, the God in the wrath of his heart hath visited me. The goddess hath become angry with me and hath grievously stricken me. The known or unknown God hath straightened me. The known or unknown goddess hath brought affliction upon me. But then in the most difficult lines for us to read who have the truth of the gospel, he says this, Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. How can we have God hear our cries? It's only by the one who is the way, the truth, and the life can we come to him. And so, for those of us who see prayer, the Christians who see prayer as an obligation or as a duty, my hope is today that you see it as a gift purchased by the blood of Christ that came as a cost. So, when you neglect prayer, you're ultimately neglecting the work of Christ and the gift he's given to you on your behalf to commune with the God who brings all life. And for the unbeliever, when you're sitting here thinking, well, this guy's calling out, but no one's hearing him. No matter what works you do, if you, do, if you try to enter into God's presence apart from Christ, he will not hear you. And so, if you're an unbeliever today, the gospel is right here. For those of us in the church, these are the thoughts and the things that go through the minds of the many of the people we work with and in our culture who deal with an impersonal society where they're a product of chance and time, and they can't actually know the God who created them, unlike us who can enter into the presence of this God and not say an impersonal God, but we can call Him our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be Your name. And so church, 
my encouragement to you would be, may these words spur you on, but then also may they terrify you for your friends who don't have this hope of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are righteous. We know that on our own, we could never enter your presence. But Lord, I thank you that Christ willingly came down so we could have your ear. That we could be in your presence. That we could be united with you and have fellowship forevermore. For Lord, as Ecclesiastes says, you have set eternity in our hearts And we look everywhere in this world, but if we look at idols and different things, we will never find fulfillment. But when we set our eyes upon you, we find hope, and we find peace, and we find salvation in Christ. And so Lord, I ask that give us the faith to believe in Christ's righteousness, and give us the faith this week to see prayer as a means of grace and as a gift. Lord, forgive us where we trespass it. We thank you for all that we have, and we pray this not in my name, but in Christ's name. Amen.